while we make our way to Second Thessalonians. And so this morning we're actually going to be uh, beginning a new book. We're going to be digging into Second Thessalonians from First Thessalonians, but it is very much a continuation of uh, the book we just came out of. And so as we head that direction, you're going to see some thim- similar themes, similar themes. You're going to see some similar themes. And yet, uh, the Apostle Paul is going to write this book, this letter, with one particular theme in mind. We'll get to that here in just a moment. But as you guys make your way that direction, let me just remind you that uh, the church at Thessalonica was planted in Acts chapter 17. And as Paul planted the church uh, there in Thessalonica, what he ran into was uh, both a great turnout. In fact, uh, verse 4 of Acts 17 says that a great multitude showed up after just the third Sunday of sharing with people, but also at the same time a great amount of uh, pushback. The Jews that were gathered there in Thessalonica, they wanted to come up against Paul sharing this message. And so they gathered what we're told are uh, evil men from the marketplace. So no doubt these were sordid characters. They came up against Paul. They ran him and Silas and Timothy out of town, and they made their way from Thessalonica eventually on down to Athens. And when Paul arrived in Athens, he grew concerned about how this early church was doing. They'd only been there just three short weeks is all they were able to share the word of God. And so you can imagine after three weeks setting up pastors and elders, this church felt very young, very new to the faith. And so Paul is concerned with their well-being. How are they getting along? And he sends Timothy from Athens back to Thessalonica to check on them, to get a report. And as Timothy brings the report back to Paul. He's eventually made his way on to Corinth by the time he gets word. Uh, What he finds is not only is the church doing well, but they're actually thriving in the midst of persecution. They're being pressed in on on all sides, and yet they're doing exceedingly well. And so Paul writes 1 Thessalonians as a way to encourage them to continue to endure. Now, one area that they were very confused about, though, was concerning the rapture of the church. As they're in the middle, if you think about this, of persecution and trials all around, their thought was, is God just going to leave us here? Maybe we missed it. Or uh, maybe those who have already died are going to somehow miss out on the rapture. And so Paul writes 1 Thessalonians to encourage them that Jesus will come back for his bride. That he will come back and he will take his church uh, with him. And that what he drives home the point, and we looked at this last week in chapter 5 verse 9, is that we are not as the body of Christ appointed to wrath. That if he's pouring out the wrath that he's actually already taken on, King Jesus already took all the wrath for us that we were supposed to receive, what he shares with them is that you are therefore not appointed to wrath. That in fact, you're appointed to eternal life. And so Paul's going to continue now in 2 Thessalonians because he gets an additional report. Just about a year later, he's going to get this report back that the Thessalonians are again struggling to understand this idea of, are we subject to wrath? Now, uh, this gives me a great amount of comfort because have any of you ever struggled to understand the Word of God? Uh, Maybe the first time or the second time or the 500th time that he's tried to share with you. And so here are these Thessalonians. They're struggling to get it, to understand it. And so Paul is going to write them another letter to encourage them, to help them understand. What has also happened in the middle of them struggling with persecution is Satan has allowed false teachers to come in. 
These false teachers have come in and they begin to teach that they were in fact in the middle of the great tribulation. That the time they were in, all this persecution that was happening, they share with them that this is it. This is the end. God has left you here. You're suffering wrath. He'll eventually come back and get you, but so sorry for you guys having to endure this. They went so far as to actually forge that Paul had written these letters. Now this, you're going to find, uh, ticks Paul off later on in this letter, that they would have forged his name or made it look like he was the one writing it. But the point to all this is, um, this is exactly what Satan wants to do, is trip up the church. He wants to uh, trip us up, and, and the way he does it is the same way we see happen at the very beginning, Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, the very first time we see Satan on the scene, and, and listen to what he says to Eve there in the garden. The serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God has made, and he said to the woman, has God indeed said? The first way he tries to trip up mankind is questioning the very character and the word of God. Has God indeed said? Are you sure that's what God said? He gets in the head of these people that perhaps God wasn't a man of his word. Perhaps we can question the very character of God. And this is what the enemy wants to do. He wants to create doubt in our hearts. And so this has happened at the church in Thessalonica. They've begun to doubt God's character. And Paul is going to write this second letter to address that. He begins in verse 1 of, chapter, or of the second book. Uh, chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, Silvanus, that is Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 2, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul begins this letter by addressing uh, who he is. This is, this is who I am. This is my name. And you'll find this consistent throughout the New Testament epistles. You might have wondered, why does Paul list his name at the very beginning? Typically, when we sign off of something, we write our name at the bottom. Well, you have to remember that they were writing on parchment. Typically, 12, 14, 20-foot-long scrolls that they would have received. And so you can imagine if you had to read the entire scroll before you got to the end of it, and you find out this wasn't meant for you, or you didn't know who this person was and what the context was that they're writing from. And so they begin this letter by stating who was doing the writing and who they were writing to in the church of the Thessalonians. Paul also begins by giving what is known as the Siamese twins of the New Testament in terms of a greeting. He says, grace to you and peace from God. This actually combines together the Greek typical greeting, which was charis. So if you were of a Greek background and you greeted one another this morning as you came into church, you would have said, grace to you, charis. It would have meant, have a beautiful day, brother. So grace is how they would greet each other. Uh, secondly, though, he adds on, and peace from God the Father, which was a typical Hebrew greeting. Uh, peace, shalom in Hebrew. And so if you were to go to Israel, even to this day, as you would greet one another, you'd say, Shalom. If it was morning, you'd say, Bokotov, Shalom, everybody. Good morning. And so what I love about this is Paul combines two very different cultures. He takes the Greek culture and he combines it with the Hebrew culture. Two people that struggle to get along. And yet in Christ, we have a tremendous amount of diversity, but we have unity in him. We might see things different. We might take things differently. We come from very different, diverse backgrounds, and yet in Jesus, we have this tremendous 
unity by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so Paul writing this, he's combining these two greetings to combine them as this early church. You are unified even though you're diverse. Now, the second thing I want to note about this greeting is this, um, that for many of us, we desire to have the peace of God, but you cannot have it unless you first accept the grace of God. That grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. And anytime we see these, this greeting in the New Testament, what you'll find is it's always in this order. It's always grace first and then peace. And so if I'm to experience the peace of God, I want it in my life, I have to first accept the grace, this unmerited favor that Jesus gave to you and I. What He did everything for me that I couldn't do for myself. And so as I experience that and accept that, I can experience His peace. Now, on a personal level, what you'll also find is uh, if I desire to have peace in my life and in my relationships and with the people I work with and that I'm around, I have to first be willing to give grace. That where there is no grace, you'll find that there is no peace. And so many times, this is the spot that we're in that we, we will cry out, Lord, I just want peace in this spot. If I could just have peace in this situation. But the reality is it's not a peace problem we have. It's a grace problem. And what is grace? I just mentioned it. It's unmerited favor. It's giving someone what they do not deserve. And that's typically the hang-up. I don't want to give them grace. You know what they did to me? You know how they treated me? I must be willing to put that aside and go, you know what? They, they need some grace in this situation so that I can have peace. Now Paul continues in verse 3. And he says, we are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is fitting because your faith grows exceedingly and the love of every one of you abounds toward one another. And so Paul is remembering their faith and their love. He's like, look, I'm thinking back to how much faith you have. You've turned away from idols. I'm thinking about how you abound in love. It sounds very similar to what he wrote in the first letter. In fact, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3, we read this just a few weeks back. Paul says, I remember without ceasing your work of faith, your labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. I remember these things. And yet, did you notice what was in the first book and what was not in the second book? Don't look at the screen and cheat. Hope. I remember your faith. I remember your love. And yet what has happened between the first time Paul wrote and the second time is these people had lost hope. Fear had driven it out of them. They were afraid they had missed the rapture. They were afraid the wrath of God was being poured out on them. They had questioned the character of God. And so as a result, they had begun to lose hope. And there is a connection between all three of these things. In fact, Paul very famously in 1 Corinthians 13, lots of times we read this chapter at weddings and yet it applies in other areas of our life. Paul says in verse 13, Now abide in faith and hope and love, these three. But the greatest of these is love. And so Paul is showing there's a connection between faith and love and hope. And what happens is when we begin to lose hope, it causes us to question our faith. And as we question our faith, we then struggle to love people. It, all these things begin to fall apart in our life. And so it, it starts, though, with faith. It starts with believing and understanding that Jesus Christ did everything for me on the cross. 
And he took all of my sin, all my shame, all my regret, and he washed it all away. In fact, what Isaiah would say way back in the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18, he says, Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord, that though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are, like, they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. And so the promise here of the Lord from Old Testament to New is to take our sin and do away with it, to actually make us like wool. And what we have to understand is that we can trust the character of the Creator and stop believing the lies of the enemy. This is what Paul is going to try to drive home as the theme of this book is going to be one of hope. Paul is trying to recapture that hope that they had lost. He says there in verse 4, So that we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure. These folks are being put through the ringer. I mean, they're in the middle of a, of a time of persecution, and so they're losing hope. And what Paul says is, hey, guess what? We've been bragging about you. We've been talking about you behind your back. And, and by the way, I want to encourage you all to talk about people behind their back. What? Wait a minute. I want to encourage you to talk about people behind their back encouraging words. Have you ever been in a situation where you heard someone was saying something behind your back, but when they share it with you, they say, look, I heard some things about you this last week. They were telling me how good you were doing in the Lord, how hard you were going for Jesus, how well your family was doing. I heard some things about you. And when you hear that, when you hear words of encouragement spoken about you behind your back, man, I don't know about you, but I could go for a month. Mark Twain would say he could be fueled for two months on one good compliment. I think we feel like that oftentimes, right? That word of encouragement that we get directly, that feels good. But man, when I hear it indirectly, when I know someone's been speaking well of me behind my back, I don't know about you, I get excited. I'm encouraged. I'm ready to continue to endure. And that's what Paul is going to encourage them in, to keep enduring. And he starts by encouraging them with his words. He says there in verse 5, which is, he's talking about the persecution and tribulation that they endure, which is manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you also suffer. Now this will be the least popular point of the entire morning, I assure you, but here it is anyway. Now, persecution is proof that you're in the kingdom. The persecution is going to come for the Christian. And what it does is it proves who we are. It is actually a token that shows that we are following hard after Christ. Uh, to back this up with scripture, a few spots, here's what Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. Yes, and, will, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. That's uplifting. All who desire to live godly will suffer uh, persecution. And what we find is that trials... In our life, they actually make us more and more like our king. More and more like Jesus. As I experience trials and tribulations and persecutions, I become more and more like him. And what scripture goes out of its way to, to compare us to is that of a precious jewel. From the Old Testament to the New, we are called God's gems. We are his jewels. We are precious, so precious that when Jesus shares the, the parable about the man who had a treasure and he buried it, that he then gave everything that he had to buy it back. 
that that special treasure was actually you and I. And Jesus gave everything to buy us back, to buy the entire world back, in fact, for you and I. And so what you guys know and understand is the comparison of, of that of a lump of coal, right? Like you take a lump of coal, ugly, nasty, dirty, dark, who would find any value in that? And yet through enough time, enough pressure being applied in all directions, by the way, uh, what happens is a beautiful diamond. And what the Lord wants for us is to be beautiful diamonds, to shine, to, to shine for him. What Peter would say in First Peter chapter 4, verse 12, is that these things shouldn't surprise us. He says, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing has happened to you. We shouldn't be surprised when trials and tribulations come our way, but instead rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. That when we go through these fiery trials, what they do is they heat us up. And, and guess what a trial always does is it pushes to the top what was already there. It doesn't make us or break us. It just shows us what was already in there. And so as these impurities come to the top, we're able to actually scrape them off. And we are more and more purified as he heats us up. And this is a wonderful truth, so wonderful that James would say, we studied this a few weeks ago, that in James chapter 1, verse 2, he says, you should count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Think about that. I don't know about you, but um, that's a struggle for me. That when I'm in a trial, the first thing I do is I want to get on my knees and say, Lord, take it away. Lord, I don't want to deal with it anymore. Are you done yet? Can you just stop with this trial? And yet what the encouragement here is, is not to pray that way, but instead to say, Lord, what is it you want to teach me in this spot? What is it you have for me? How, how do you want to make me shine more like the diamond that you see instead of this old lump of coal that I feel like most days? And so personally, this is what trials mean and tribulations in our life. Now corporately, I think it's important to note that as a church, trials also play an important role as persecution. What you'll find is that uh, throughout history, the biggest threat to the church is not persecution. Um, it is actually comfort. That the thing that makes us ineffective is not persecution. It is we get entirely too comfortable in the spot that we're in. Case in point, in the 1940s, in the country of China, out of nearly a billion people, they had roughly four million professing Christians. In 1949, something happened that the People's Republic of China actually took over the entire country. And so in comes communism, in comes atheism, out goes any kind of religious belief or following. And, and the, the People's Republic of China stopped at no end to try to drive out, stamp out, stop Christianity there in their country. They went to great lengths to drag people out of their homes. People were murdered. Churches were destroyed. The, the church should have collapsed. Even to this very day, Christians are persecuted daily in China. And yet in an article that I read this week, by the year 2030, in just eight years, they believe there will be 250 million Christians in China. They will be the most Christian nation in the entire world, in the middle of persecution. And the reason is, persecution doesn't 
hurt the church. Comfort does. As these people are being persecuted and forced to go underground, they clung fast to Jesus. And their neighbors, the people that were all around them, they saw that and wanted to know, how and why are you so different? And Christianity actually is and has exploded in this country. Now we see similarly happen with the early New Testament church. That as Jesus ascended in Acts chapter 1, he gives the early church this command. He says, I'm going to give you power of the Holy Spirit because I want you to go be witnesses to Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, and to the end of the earth. I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit dynamite and I want you to go to work. Except the issue with that is the early church, um, they decided to just stay put. And, and this early church, they began to form a commune. They just wanted to have themselves a holy huddle. Just hang out together. So happy together. I mean, they were so happy hanging out together. But this wasn't what Jesus commanded. And so what he allowed is great persecution to come to the early church. In fact, persecution at the hands of one guy named Saul of Tarsus. And Saul of Tarsus wanted to absolutely, utterly eliminate, destroy, wipe out what he referred to as the way. And so Paul, breathing great amounts of anger and hatred towards the church, he sought to persecute the church, even condoning the death of Stephen, the first martyr there in Acts chapter 7, stoned to death right there in Jerusalem. And at the hands of this persecution, here's what happens. Uh, Acts chapter chapter 8, verse 4. Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere, preaching the word. As persecution came down upon them, they actually dug into the word of God, and they sought to go fulfill the very thing Jesus said to go and do in the first place. And so as persecution happens, the word actually goes forth. Now for us sitting here today, it's hard for us to wrap our mind around persecution like that. Because we've been so comfortable for such a long time. And yet, as I was looking back at this this week and thinking about it, something very interesting happened in March of 2020. No matter what you feel or how you look at this thing from the political side, I'm going to completely avoid that. But I will tell you, uh, the reality is church went from easy to more difficult. It wasn't persecution like what maybe China uh, experiences But the governments, depending on what state you live in, sought to put an end to corporately gathering as a church. In fact, telling us we could no longer assemble. And based upon the way I read scripture, specifically Hebrews chapter 10, which says, therefore do not forsake the assembly of the brethren, what the government sought to do was tell us we could no longer adhere to the word of God. And yet what we found is in that time, there were people that were hungry for the word. There were people that were so excited about the word of God that their life maybe had been far too comfortable for far too long, but when the thing that they had taken for granted was taken away, there were groups of people that said, you know what, I want to hear God's word taught. And and here we get placed in Charleston, Illinois, where the Lord said, I want you to open a church in September of 2020. Now, he told me that in December of 2019. And so to me, it looked all like, hey, everything's fine. God says plant a church. He gave us a building. This is the spot. And then you have to wonder, Lord, what are you calling us to go do? You really want us to go plant a church in in the middle of a pandemic? I don't even know if we can assemble. And yet you're telling us to assemble. And what we have found is that people 
showed up. Week in and week out. Many of you were at the first service. And several of you have come in since then. And, and here's the thing. When you showed up, the only thing we actually had to offer you was the Word of God. The reality was you can get something better at every other church in this entire area. And I'm not knocking them. I'm just telling you straight out. There's probably better worship. Jake and Michaela are fantastic. We don't have a light show, a fog machine. The only thing we have is mediocre coffee at best. And we have the Word of God. And I would contend for each and every one of you, this will be the thing that will stay. This has staying power. That regardless of what a great job we do with a, a sound and light show and maybe a fog machine, probably not a fog machine. Although I did tell Jake early on, it'd be awesome if I jumped out of the baptismal with the fog machine to To Hell with the Devil by Striper. Wouldn't that be cool? To hell with the devil. Like, man, I would, that would be awesome. Not really our calling, though. And so the Word of God is a thing that brought people here, even in the middle of a time of persecution. Now, it's probably, there's going to be another season of it. We need to be prepared, and we need to press in. And here's a quote that I read this week. I don't know who to attribute it to, so I'll say it's anonymous. Some of you probably smarter than me are going to tell me who, who issued this. But what I read was that an easy life leads to shallow faith. But an easy life, one with no trials, no struggles, no challenges, leads to a faith that is shallow. And what I have found in my life is that the people that I know that have the strongest faith, man, they've been through a lot. And when you go to talk to them, whether it's challenges in their family, challenges personally, challenges from the outside pressing in on them, what a tremendously deep faith they have because of the challenges they've been able to endure in their life. Now, continuing, Paul says in verse 6, Since it isn't righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you, and to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God. And on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, then they, these shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Now, judgment is one of those things that for many of us, it gives us the willies. <laughs> like, are we really going to talk about judgment? But here's the thing. Anytime judgment is concerned with the Lord, it is always righteous. He is never out to punish the righteous with the unrighteous either. We looked at this a few weeks back when we looked at Sodom and Gomorrah as God was getting ready to judge Sodom. And he told Abraham, look, this is what I'm going to do. And Abraham knew that his nephew was there in Sodom. What Abraham said is, surely, Lord, you wouldn't punish the righteous with the unrighteous. And he began to negotiate. If you only found 50 righteous, and the Lord said, I wouldn't, I wouldn't destroy the city for 50. What about 40? What about 30? What about 25? Quite the negotiator was Abraham. I mean, he was driving a bargain to the Lord, and he finally got to 10, thinking in the back of his mind, surely there's 10 righteous people. And the Lord said, for 10 righteous, I wouldn't judge a city. So God is determined not to judge the righteous with the unrighteous. And yet, the cry is, 
often from us, Lord, when are you going to make things right? When are you going to come back and set all this stuff straight? Because we're suffering, we're being persecuted. At some point in time, you've got to come back and make all this right. And so here what we see is uh, the Lord taking vengeance, not the way we think of vengeance. I usually think of some kind of a Denzel Washington movie where he's you know, blowing people up on the hood of a car as my kind of vengeance. That's how I want to have vengeance. But the Lord is, is having vengeance or recompense on those who would not adhere to his holy law, to the gospel. And I share that to say this, that no one accidentally ends up in hell. That for every person, they will have a choice and they will make a decision that they want to, that they desire to go there because they want to go their own way. They don't want to listen to what the Lord has to say. Now, how that relates to us when we're in the middle of a trial, I think oftentimes uh, we're like Asaph was back in Psalms chapter 73. And here's what Asaph cries out to the Lord in verse 2. He says, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. What Asaph's saying is, why do I have to suffer? Why do I have to go through all this when I see all these wicked people? And man, they're prosperous. Their health is great. They're making money. Things look great. It's easy street for those guys. Why do I have to suffer like this? This is what he's crying out to the Lord until you get to verse 17 of Psalm 73. And he says, until I went to the sanctuary of God, and then I understood their end. I went into the house of the Lord. I sought him, and then I saw they're all going to come to destruction. This whole thing is going down. And so this is what Asaph saw, that Jesus is going to make all things right. God is not slack as it relates to judgment. In fact, when you look at Scripture, God throughout the Old Testament, even into the New, shows a law of compensation, that he is always fair about his judgment. A few examples I'll point out. When you consider uh, Pharaoh, right? In Exodus, there Pharaoh wanted to destroy the Jews, the little Jewish baby boys. He thought they could rise up and have a great army against him. And so what he issued was a decree that all the little baby boys, two and under, should be thrown into the Nile to stop any kind of an army and an uprising. And as you fast forward, what you'll find is Moses, who interestingly enough was drawn out of the water, that's what his name means, he then leads the nation of Israel through the Red Sea, the parted water, only to have Pharaoh trying to track him down, where Pharaoh and all of his army were destroyed in the water, (laughs) completely overtaken, drowned. The very thing he desired to do to God's people happened to him. You fast forward to the book of Esther and you see the time of Haman. Haman was an Ammonite. There's a whole story there why he hated the Jews, but he hated all the Jewish people. We won't get into that today. But he hated in particular a guy named Mordecai, who was Queen Esther's uncle. Haman didn't know that. He tries to set Mordecai up for failure. And he so wants Mordecai to die that he erects a great big gallow in his backyard. They're going to have a barbecue and a good old lynching in the backyard. I mean, who doesn't want to have a barbecue and hang somebody? I mean, that's, that's his idea of entertainment. And so as he sets all this up, what happens is the plan completely erodes to destroy God's people out from underneath his feet. And Haman ends up being hung on the very gallows that he erected for Mordecai. You see, God can have vengeance, and he always does it fairly. Similarly, with the Bible story, when we think about Daniel, right? Daniel there is 
uh, serving King Darius. And Darius actually loves Daniel as an advisor. But what, who doesn't love Daniel are all the people he works with because he's so godly. And so they, they trick Darius into issuing a decree that for 30 days, you can only worship the king of the Persian Empire. And what they knew was Daniel, as was his custom, three times a day would open the window towards Jerusalem and pray. And Daniel, a man of integrity, refused to back down. And so, as was his custom, he prayed, he was caught, he was sentenced to death, throwing him into the den of the lions. And so they threw him into the lion's den. What you know from the Bible story is that the mouths of the lions were shut. And the next morning, Darius was so excited that Daniel was still alive, he pulls Daniel back out. But then his next order, and we don't often share this in children's church, uh, was that all those princes that sought to trick the king, uh, they were thrown in the lion's den. And, and we read that before their feet even hit the ground, they were consumed. You see, the Lord knows how to repay. Finally, when you consider the time of Christ, and as Jesus comes to his people, the Messiah, the Mashiach, the one that they had waited for for thousands of years to set them free, and yet instead what they decreed was he needs to be crucified. And going so far as to say, let this man's blood be upon our heads. We'll take it. And so what we find is, in fact, that would come true. Jesus gave them the prophecy by the way, before they ever even uh, crucified him, he said, look, there's not going to be one stone laid upon another of this temple. Not one stone is going to be left. And in 70 AD, the Romans came in just 30 years after Jesus was crucified, and they came in and burnt everything. They burnt all of Jerusalem to the point where the temple, it got so hot, the fires did, that the gold actually melted off the temple walls and went down into the crevices of the rocks, which is why the Roman soldiers went in, and they made sure not one stone was left upon another. The very prophecy the Lord gave them. And so God is all about taking care of his people, but he is also all about giving people what they want. That ultimately, at the end of the day, what happens is people desire to go their own way, desire to seek every other kind of God other than the true and living God, so much so that what Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, is this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things which are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse, because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were they thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. And you think about what great lengths our incredibly intellectual society has gone to try to drive God out of every facet. We come up with all kinds of theories of how the universe is created and completely ignore that it must have a creator. The design is too perfect. There's too much evidence. This is exactly what Paul is writing. And so professing to be wise, they actually became foolish, coming up with completely crazy theories about how things could be, how life could exist. Because at the end of the day, what we desire to worship is ourselves. What Solomon would say in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11, is that God has placed eternity in man's hearts. 
that we all have this desire to know what eternity is going to look like. And therefore, we become incurably worshipful. We are worshipful creatures, and we are going to worship something. The problem is, if it's not the true and living God, it ends up being old number one here. We put up all kinds of things as idols, people, athletes, even our own families, if we're not careful. We worship them, and all these things will come to an end. God wants us to worship him and him alone because it's good for us. It's actually safe for us. It's healthy for us. And so the cry is, Lord, when will you make all things right? Paul says here in verse 9 that they shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. His promise is to make things right, and yet we continually cry out, Lord, when will you make it right? When's it going to happen? I, I want to know because this feels so wrong. And yet, I didn't put this on the notes, but I'm going to skip over to 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. And Peter says this, that the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. You see, the Lord is not slack when it comes to judgment. What he is is patient with people just like you and me. And when I consider God's patience in the midst of me crying out, Lord, when will you return? I have to remember that he was patient to wait on me. Because the reality is, it wasn't that many years ago that this guy, he doesn't make it to heaven. That's just the truth. It doesn't matter that I prayed a prayer as a little boy. The truth is, nothing in my life showed that I actually had a relationship with Jesus. And so I am thankful for God's patience. I'm thankful that he is slack and he is slow to judge. And so while I cry out, Lord, when will the lion of the tribe of Judah come? I have to also say thank you for the lamb that was slain. Thank you for paying for my sin. Thank you for being patient with me. Now as we head to close, verse 10, Paul says, when he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among all those who believe, because your testimony among you was believed, therefore we also pray always for you that our God would count you worthy of this calling and fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness and the work of faith with power, that the name of the Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our Lord, excuse me, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul's encouragement here as he wraps up this first chapter, as he prays for them, he, he encourages them to walk worthy of their calling, to let your lives match up with your words, to be people of integrity, in every single aspect, everything that we do, we should be a people whose lives line up with Scripture. Now, what he also promises here in verse 11 is the work is that goodness and the work of faith with power will be in us. His promise here is to actually, as we are resurrected, to give us power. A few months ago, we had a shed in our backyard. And I mean to tell you, this old shed was nasty. I mean, like the walls were falling down, the door was falling off, it had leaks in the roof, it was just ugly. Like U-G-L-Y, you ain't got no alibi, ugly, ugly. 
And so much so that Angela wouldn't go in there, the kids didn't want to get anything out of there, and all my stuff that I wanted to store in there, I'm now storing in the garage. And so I decided, look, we need to remake the shed. It needs to have a glorious resurrection. Thankfully, I had some carpenter guys that had a little bit of time. I said, look, I want you to go and remake the shed. I want you to make it good as new. So good that my wife can no longer complain that it smells bad, looks bad, is bad. So then I get the stuff out of my garage and I can have my garage back. A few days later, I come back and man, the shed is redone. And yet the stuff is all still outside. That's one. That's interesting. Nobody wanted to put the things in the shed where they belong. I opened the door, though, to the shed, and what I saw was the walls were painted. The floor was redone. The door was all looking nice, and even a little window put in there. It looked fantastic. And I thought, I, I don't want all that old stuff in that nice new shed. I went inside to talk to Angela about it, and she said, look, here's the thing. The shed looks so nice. We didn't want to put anything in it now. I'm like, oh, that stinks. And yet, neither did I. She said, can we make that into an area for our family to hang out where we can actually rejoice and come together and have a good time? Turn it into a, a playhouse. That's a great idea. But here's the thing. This newly rebuilt, resurrected shed was missing one thing. You flipped the light switch, and it had no power. There was no lights. Lots of times we are like that resurrected shed, you see. We've been rebuilt, remade. We're made for glory. And yet, you go flip the switch, and there is no power. Because what Paul says here is that he desires to give us the work of faith with power. Where does the power come from? It comes from us saying, Holy Spirit, Lord Jesus, thank you for saving me. Now I want you to be all over me. I want you to be in me, on me, through me. I want the power, that dynamite power of your Holy Spirit. Come in and fill me to the point of overflowing. This is how we have power to go do the thing we're called to do. Lots of times we get excited about resurrection. We get excited about people accepting Christ. And yet we do not give them this key component, which is don't go do it in your flesh. Ask him to give you power so that you can be witnesses to the people you interact with. And I always encourage people, ask for this daily. Don't ask for it just once in a while. Say, Lord, I want the power of your Holy Spirit in my life. This would cause some to say, if I have his power, why do I have to keep asking? Well, here's what H.A. Ironside said, um, because you leak. <laughs> we have to ask for the power of the Holy Spirit to come on us over and over again because we leak. Some of you leaked before you even got to church this morning. You leaked all over your whole family on the way Get in the car, kids. Come on. Right? We, we leak. And so the, the call here of the Lord is, what he tells us in Luke chapter 11 is for all those who desire to have the Holy Spirit, what we need to do is ask. Ask for the Holy Spirit to come into your life and to give you power through your life. The second thing I want to point out is that he has promised us to be glorified in him. Verse 10, he says, when he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among all those who believe. Verse 12, he says, and that the name of the Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you. 
Understand that there is going to come a time where you will be glorified to the best that you could ever imagine. Even, even in a way you can't even comprehend when it comes to the heavenly. So much so that when we see each other in heaven, we're going to recognize each other somehow by the power of the Spirit. But we're going to look so amazing. I'm going to be like, wow, I can't believe God did that with you. I mean, you guys are great. You're going to look at me and go, I can't believe God did that with that guy. Because most of us, most days, we're just trying to hold it together. I mean, in these bodies, they're falling apart. But the reality is he's got something so much better in store for us to be glorified in him, to be glorious. When he looks at us, what he actually sees is not all our failures and our flaws and our trip-ups and our mess-ups and the shame and regret. What Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, this is highlighter-worthy, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. What he sees is his workmanship. The Greek word is the word poema. You're his poem. You're his beautifully well-written poem. That's what he sees in us. And I know this to be true because Paul says, he has given you his name, that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you. It is not a small thing that he has given you and I his name to carry around. It is not something to be trifled with or to be looked to look beyond, it's something to actually glory in, that we receive the name of Christ. That when we go and interact with others, they should go, man, what is different about them? Oh, they got the name of Jesus. Some of you understand this because you come from families with really good names, right? Like great names, a name that you wouldn't want to uh, have a black mark against whatsoever. And so you, you know what it means to disgrace the name of your family. Now there are others where the family name, not so good. And for the rest of us, it's probably a little bit of both. I remember talking to my grandma about a group of people I knew we were related to, and, and boy, they were smart. I mean, they were like high IQ people. I'm like, I am related to them. She's like, yes, you are, honey. Here's the thing. You're also related to them over there, too. And when I looked over there, I'm like, oh, no, that's not good at all. She's like, yeah, you, you better be thankful for the name you're given, but no, it could go either way here, bud. Some of our names are like that. But here's the thing. In Christ, we've been given a new name. A name of glory and honor and power. And I want to encourage you to carry that around knowing you represent Him. His poem written in your life. His testimony written in each of you through and through. Let that be the thing that other people see. Remember that it's His name that is actually carrying us through every day. And so, Father, we thank you and we praise you for an opportunity to carry your name. Lord Jesus, when I consider that, what a weighty thing. It is terrifying. And yet it's the way you designed us to be. That we get to be Jesus with skin on. With the people we come into contact with, that we interact with. Lord, help us to be good representations of you. Father, it is no small thing, yet it is so honorable that you would pick us, that you would choose us. Lord, I pray that you would help us as we are in the midst of a trial or persecution or tribulation. Lord, continue to make us new and fresh. 
Father, thank you for the reality that you are making us all beautiful diamonds, precious gems is what you want out of us. Father, please let your glory shine through us. In Jesus' name.